0: Book two, chapter two, paragraphs twenty to forty of Progress and Poverty by Henry George. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But from such considerations as these, let us advance to a more definite inquiry. I assert that the cases commonly cited as instances of overpopulation will not bear investigation. India, China, and Ireland furnish the strongest of these cases in each of these countries large numbers have perished by starvation and large classes are reduced to abject misery or compelled to emigrate but is this really due to overpopulation comparing total population with total area india and china are far from being the most densely populated countries of the world according to the estimates of messrs Bem and wagner The population of India is but 132 to the square mile, and that of China 119, whereas Saxony has a population of 442 to the square mile, Belgium 441, England 422, the Netherlands 291, Italy 234, and Japan 233. FOOTNOTE I take these figures from the Smithsonian report for 1873, leaving out decimals. Messrs. Bamna-Wagner put the population of China at 446,500,000, although there are some who contend that it does not exceed 150,000,000. They put the population of Hither India at 206,225,580, giving 132.29 to the square mile. Of Ceylon, at 2,405,287, or 97.36 to the square mile. Of further India, at 21,018,062, or 27.94 to the square mile. They estimate the population of the world at one billion three hundred and seventy-seven million, an average of 26.64 to the square mile. End of footnote. There are thus in both countries large areas unused or not fully used, but even in their more densely populated districts there can be no doubt that either could maintain a much greater population in a much higher degree of comfort, for in both countries is labour applied to production in the rudest and most inefficient ways, and in both countries great natural resources are wholly neglected. This arises from no innate deficiency in the people, For the Hindu, as comparative philology has shown, is of our own blood, and China possessed a high degree of civilization and the rudiments of the most important modern inventions when our ancestors were wandering savages. It arises from the form which the social organization has in both countries taken, which has shackled productive power and robbed industry of its reward. In India, from time immemorial, the working classes have been ground down by exactions and oppressions into a condition of helpless and hopeless degradation. For ages and ages the cultivator of the soil has esteemed himself happy if, of his produce, the extortion of the strong hand left him enough to support life and furnish seed. Capital could nowhere be safely accumulated, or to any considerable extent be used to assist production. All wealth that could be wrung from the people was in the possession of princes who were little better than robber-chiefs quartered on the country, or in that of their farmers or favourites, and was wasted in useless or worse than useless luxury, while religion, sunken into an elaborate and terrible superstition, tyrannized over the mind as physical force did over the bodies of men. Under these conditions, the only arts that could advance were those that ministered to the ostentation and luxury of the great. The elephants of the Raja blazed with gold of exquisite workmanship, and the umbrellas that symbolized his regal power glittered with gems, but the plough of the riot was only a sharpened stick. The ladies of the Raja's harem wrapped themselves in muslins so fine as to take the name of woven wind, but the tools of the artisan were of the poorest and rudest description, and commerce could only be carried on, as it were, by stealth. Is it not clear that this tyranny and insecurity have produced the want and starvation of India, and not, as according to Buckle, the pressure of population upon subsistence that has produced the want, and the want the tyranny? Footnote. History of Civilization, Volume 1, Chapter 2. In this chapter, Buckle has collected a great deal of evidence of the oppression and degradation of the people of India from the most remote times, a condition which, blinded by the malthusian doctrine he has accepted and made the cornerstone of his theory of the development of civilization he attributes to the ease with which food can there be produced end of footnote says the rev william tennant a chaplain in the service of the east india company writing in seventeen ninety six two years before the publication of the essay on population when we reflect upon the great fertility of hindustan It is amazing to consider the frequency of famine. It is evidently not owing to any sterility of soil or climate. The evil must be traced to some political cause, and it requires but little penetration to discover it in the avarice and extortion of the various governments. The great spur to industry, that of security, is taken away. Hence no man raises more grain than is barely sufficient for himself, and the first unfavourable season produces a famine. The Mogul government at no period offered full security to the prince, still less to his vassals, and to peasants the most scanty protection of all. It was a continued tissue of violence and insurrection, treachery and punishment, under which neither commerce nor the arts could prosper, nor agriculture assume the appearance of a system. Its downfall gave rise to a state still more afflictive, since anarchy is worse than misrule the mohammedan government wretched as it was the european nations have not the merit of overturning it fell beneath the weight of its own corruption and had already been succeeded by the multifarious tyranny of petty chiefs whose right to govern consisted in their treason to the state and whose exactions on the peasants were as boundless as their avarice the rents to government were and where natives rule still are levied twice a year by a merciless under the semblance of an army, who wantonly destroy or carry off whatever part of the produce may satisfy their caprice or satiate their avidity, after having hunted the ill-fated peasants from the villages to the woods. Any attempt of the peasants to defend their persons or property within the mud walls of their villages only calls for the more signal vengeance on those useful but ill-fated mortals. They are then surrounded and attacked with musketry and field-pieces till resistance ceases, when the survivors are sold and their habitations burnt and levelled with the ground. Hence you will frequently meet with the riots gathering up the scattered remnants of what had yesterday been their habitation, if fear has permitted them to return, but oftener the ruins are seen smoking after a second visitation of this kind without the appearance of a human being to interrupt the awful silence of desolation. This description does not apply to the Mohammedan chieftains alone. It is equally applicable to the Rajas in the districts governed by Hindus. Footnote. Indian Recreations by Reverend William Tennant, London, 1804, Volume 1, Section 39. End of footnote. To this merciless rapacity, which would have produced want and famine, were the population but one to a square mile and the land a garden of Eden succeeded, in the first era of British rule in India, as merciless a rapacity, backed by a far more irresistible power. Says Macaulay, in his essay on Lord Clive, Enormous fortunes were rapidly accumulated at Calcutta, while millions of human beings were reduced to the extremity of wretchedness. They had been accustomed to live under tyranny, but never under tyranny like this. They found the little finger of the company thicker than the loins of Surajah Dowlah. It resembled the government of evil genii rather than the government of human tyrants. Sometimes they submitted in patient misery, sometimes they fled from the white man as their fathers had been used to fly from the Maharata, and the palanquin of the English traveller was often carried through silent villages and towns that the report of his approach had made desolate. Upon horrors that Macaulay thus but touches, the vivid eloquence of Burke throws a stronger light. Whole districts surrendered to the unrestrained cupidity of the worst of humankind, poverty-stricken peasants fiendishly tortured to compel them to give up their little hoards, and once populous tracts turned into deserts. But the lawless license of early English rule has been long restrained. To all that vast population the strong hand of England has given a more than Roman peace, The just principles of English law have been extended by an elaborate system of codes and law officers designed to secure to the humblest of these abject peoples the rights of Anglo-Saxon freemen. The whole peninsula has been intersected by railways, and great irrigation works have been constructed. Yet, with increasing frequency, famine has succeeded famine, raging with greater intensity over wider areas. Is not this a demonstration of the Malfusian theory? Does it not show that no matter how much the possibilities of subsistence are increased, population still continues to press upon it? Does it not show, as Malthus contended, that to shut up the sluices by which superabundant population is carried off is but to compel nature to open new ones, and that unless the sources of human increase are checked by prudential regulation, the alternative of war is famine? This has been the orthodox explanation but the truth as may be seen in the facts brought forth in recent discussions of indian affairs in the english periodicals is that these famines which have been and are now sweeping away their millions are no more due to the pressure of population upon the natural limits of subsistence than was the desolation of the carnatic when hyder ali's horsemen burst upon it in a whirlwind of destruction the millions of india have bowed their necks beneath the yokes of many conquerors But worst of all is the steady, grinding weight of English domination, a weight which is literally crushing millions out of existence, and, as shown by English writers, is inevitably tending to a most frightful and widespread catastrophe. Other conquerors have lived in the land, and, though bad and tyrannous in their rule, have understood and been understood by the people. But India now is like a great estate owned by an absentee and alien landlord. A most expensive military and civil establishment is kept up, managed and officered by Englishmen who regard India as but a place of temporary exile, and an enormous sum, estimated as at least twenty million pounds annually, raised from a population where labourers are in many places glad in good times to work for one and a half pence to fourpence a day, is drained away to England in the shape of remittances, pensions, home charges of the government, etc., a tribute for which there is no return. The immense sums lavished on railroads have, as shown by the returns, been economically unproductive. The great irrigation works are for the most part costly failures. In large parts of India the English, in their desire to create a class of landed proprietors, turned over the soil in absolute possession to hereditary tax-gatherers, who rack-rent the cultivators most mercilessly in other parts where the rent is still taken by the state in the shape of a land tax assessments are so high and taxes are collected so relentlessly as to drive the riots who get but the most scanty living in good seasons into the claws of money-lenders who are if possible even more rapacious than the zemindars upon salt an article of prime necessity everywhere and of a special necessity where food is almost exclusively vegetable, a tax of nearly twelve hundred per cent is imposed, so that its various industrial uses are prohibited, and large bodies of the people cannot get enough to keep either themselves or their cattle in health. Below the English officials are a horde of native employees who oppress and extort. The effect of english law with its rigid rules and to the native mysterious proceedings has been but to put a potent instrument of plunder into the hands of the native moneylenders from whom the peasants are compelled to borrow on the most extravagant terms to meet their taxes and to whom they are easily induced to give obligations of which they know not the meaning we do not care for the people of india writes florence nightingale with what seems like a sob the saddest sight to be seen in the east "'nay, probably in the world, is the peasant of our Eastern Empire. "'And she goes on to show the causes of the terrible famines, "'in taxation which takes from the cultivators the very means of cultivation, "'and the actual slavery to which the riots are reduced as "'the consequences of our own laws, "'producing in the most fertile country in the world "'a grinding chronic semi-starvation in many places "'where what is called famine does not exist.' footnote miss nightingale the people of india in nineteenth century for august eighteen seventy eight gives instances which she says represent millions of cases of the state of peonage to which the cultivators of southern india have been reduced through the facilities afforded by the civil courts to the frauds and oppressions of money-lenders and minor native officials our civil courts are regarded as institutions for enabling the rich to grind the faces of the poor and many are fain to seek a refuge from their jurisdiction within native territory says sir david wedderburn in an article on protected princes in india in a previous july number of the same magazine in which he also gives a native state where taxation is comparatively light as an instance of the most prosperous population of india End of footnote. the famines which have been devastating india says h m hindman are in the main financial famines. Men and women cannot get food because they cannot save the money to buy it. Yet we are driven, so we say, to tax these people more. Footnote on H. M. Hindman. See Articles in Nineteenth Century for October 1878 and March 1879. End of footnote. And he shows how, even from famine-stricken districts, food is exported in payment of taxes, and how the whole of India is subjected to a steady and exhausting drain, which, combined with the enormous expenses of government, is making the population year by year poorer. The exports of India consist almost exclusively of agricultural products. For at least one third of these, as Mr. Hindman shows, no return whatever is received. They represent tribute, remittances made by Englishmen in India, or expenses of the English branch of the Indian government. Footnote. Professor Forsett, in a recent article on the proposed loans to India, calls attention to such items as £1,200 for outfit and passage of a member of the Governor-General's Council, £2,450 for outfit and passage of bishops of Calcutta and Bombay. End of footnote and for the rest the return is for the most part government stores or articles of comfort and luxury used by the English masters of India. He shows that the expenses of government have been enormously increased under imperial rule, that the relentless taxation of a population so miserably poor that the masses are not more than half fed is robbing them of their scanty means for cultivating the soil, that the number of bullocks, the Indian draft animal, is decreasing, and the scanty implements of culture being given up to money-lenders, from whom we, a business people, are forcing the cultivators to borrow at 122460% to build and pay the interest on the cost of vast public works, which have never paid nearly 5%, footnote on borrowing at 122460%, Florence Nightingale says 100% is common, and even then the cultivator is robbed in ways which she illustrates it is hardly necessary to say that these rates like those of the pawnbroker are not interest in the economic sense of the term End of footnote. says mr hindman the truth is that indian society as a whole has been frightfully impoverished under our rule and that the process is now going on at an exceedingly rapid rate a statement which cannot be doubted in view of the facts presented not only by such writers as i have referred to but by indian officials themselves the very efforts made by the government to alleviate famines do by the increased taxation imposed but intensify and extend their real cause although in the recent famine in southern india six millions of people it is estimated perished of actual starvation and the great mass of those who survived were actually stripped yet the taxes were not remitted and the salt tax already prohibitory to the great bulk of these poverty-stricken people was increased forty per cent just as after the terrible bengal famine in seventeen seventy the revenue was actually driven up by raising assessments upon the survivors and rigorously enforcing collection in india now as in india in past times it is only the most superficial view that can attribute want and starvation to pressure of population upon the ability of the land to produce subsistence could the cultivators retain their little capital could they be released from the drain which even in non famine years reduces great masses of them to a scale of living not merely below what is deemed necessary for the sepoys but what english humanity gives to the prisoners in the jails Reviving industry, assuming more productive forms, would undoubtedly suffice to keep a much greater population. There are still in India great areas uncultivated, vast mineral resources untouched, and it is certain that the population of India does not reach, as within historical times it never has reached, the real limit of the soil to furnish subsistence, or even the point where this power begins to decline with the increasing drafts made upon it the real cause of want in India has been, and yet is, the rapacity of man, not the niggardliness of nature. What is true of India is true of China. Densely populated as China is in many parts, that the extreme poverty of the lower classes is to be attributed to causes similar to those which have operated in India, and not to too great population, is shown by many facts. Insecurity prevails, Production goes on under the greatest disadvantages, and exchange is closely fettered. Where the government is a succession of squeezings, and security for capital of any sort must be purchased of a mandarin, where men's shoulders are the great reliance for inland transportation, where the junk is obliged to be constructed so as to unfit it for a sea boat, where piracy is a regular trade, and robbers often march in regiments, Poverty would prevail, and the failure of a crop result in famine, no matter how sparse the population. Footnote: The seat of recent famine in China was not the most thickly settled districts. End of footnote. That China is capable of supporting a much greater population is shown not only by the great extent of uncultivated land to which all travellers testify, but by the immense unworked mineral deposits which are there known to exist. China, for instance, is said to contain the largest and finest deposit of coal yet anywhere discovered. How much the working of these coal-beds would add to the ability to support a greater population may readily be imagined. Coal is not food, it is true, but its production is equivalent to the production of food. For, not only may coal be exchanged for food, as is done in all mining districts, but the force evolved by its consumption may be used in the production of food or may set labor free for the production of food. Neither in India nor China, therefore, can poverty and starvation be charged to the pressure of population against subsistence. It is not dense population, but the causes which prevent social organization from taking its natural development and labor from securing its full return, that keep millions just on the verge of starvation, and every now and again force millions beyond it. That the Hindu laborer thinks himself fortunate to get a handful of rice, that the Chinese eat rats and puppies, is no more due to the pressure of population than it is due to the pressure of population that the digger Indians live on grasshoppers, or the aboriginal inhabitants of Australia eat the worms found in rotten wood. Let me be understood. I do not mean merely to say that India or China could, with a more highly developed civilization, maintain a greater population for to this any Malthusian would agree. The Malthusian doctrine does not deny that an advance in the productive arts would permit a greater population to find subsistence. But the Malthusian theory affirms, and this is its essence, that whatever be the capacity for production, the natural tendency of population is to come up with it, and, in the endeavour to press beyond it, to produce, to use the phrase of Malthus, that degree of vice and misery which is necessary to prevent further increase, so that as productive power is increased, population will correspondingly increase, and in a little time produce the same results as before. What I say is this, that nowhere is there any instance which will support this theory, that nowhere can want be properly attributed to the pressure of population against the power to procure subsistence in the then existing degree of human knowledge that everywhere the vice and misery attributed to overpopulation can be traced to the warfare, tyranny, and oppression which prevent knowledge from being utilized and deny the security essential to production. The reason why the natural increase of population does not produce want we shall come to hereafter. The fact that it has not yet anywhere done so is what we are now concerned with. This fact is obvious with regard to India and China it will be obvious too wherever we trace to their causes the results which on superficial view are often taken to proceed from overpopulation ireland of all european countries furnishes the great stock example of overpopulation the extreme poverty of the peasantry and the low rate of wages there prevailing the irish famine and irish emigration are constantly referred to as a demonstration of the malthusian theory worked out under the eyes of the civilized world I doubt if a more striking instance can be cited of the power of a pre-accepted theory to blind men as to the true relations of facts. The truth is, and it lies on the surface, that Ireland has never yet had a population which the natural powers of the country, in the existing state of the productive arts, could not have maintained in ample comfort. At the period of her greatest population, 1840-45, to Ireland contained something over eight millions of people but a very large proportion of them managed merely to exist, lodging in miserable cabins, clothed with miserable rags, and with but potatoes for their staple food. When the potato blight came, they died by thousands. But was it the inability of the soil to support so large a population that compelled so many to live in this miserable way, and exposed them to starvation on the failure of a single root crop? On the contrary, it was the same remorseless rapacity that robbed the indian riot of the fruits of his toil and left him to starve where nature offered plenty a merciless banditti of tax-gatherers did not march through the land plundering and torturing but the laborer was just as effectually stripped by as merciless a horde of landlords among whom the soil had been divided as their absolute possession regardless of any rights of those who lived upon it Consider the conditions of production under which this eight millions managed to live until the potato blight came. It was a condition to which the words used by Mr. Tennant in reference to India may as appropriately be applied. The great spur to industry, that of security, was taken away. Cultivation was, for the most part, carried on by tenants at will, who— even if the rack-rents which they were forced to pay had permitted them, did not dare to make improvements which would have been but the signal for an increase of rent. Labour was thus applied in the most inefficient and wasteful manner, and labour was dissipated in aimless idleness that, with any security for its fruits, would have been applied unremittingly. But even under these conditions it is a matter of fact that Ireland did more than support eight millions for when her population was at its highest Ireland was a food-exporting country. Even during the famine, grain and meat and butter and cheese were carted for exportation along roads lined with the starving and past trenches into which the dead were piled. For these exports of food, or at least for a great part of them, there was no return." So far as the people of Ireland were concerned, the food thus exported might as well have been burnt up or thrown into the sea, or never produced. It went not as an exchange, but as a tribute, to pay the rent of absentee landlords, a levy wrung from producers by those who in no wise contributed to production. Had this food been left to those who raised it, had the cultivators of the soil been permitted to retain and use the capital their labour produced, Had security stimulated industry and permitted the adoption of economical methods, there would have been enough to support in bounteous comfort the largest population Ireland ever had, and the potato blight might have come and gone without stinting a single human being of a full meal. For it was not the imprudence of Irish peasants, as English economists coldly say, which induced them to make the potato the staple of their food. Irish immigrants, when they can get other things, do not live upon the potato, and certainly in the United States the prudence of the Irish character in endeavouring to lay by something for a rainy day is remarkable. They lived on the potato because rack-rents stripped everything else from them. The truth is that the poverty and misery of Ireland have never been fairly attributable to overpopulation. McCulloch, writing in 1838, says, in note four to wealth of nations the wonderful density of population in ireland is the immediate cause of the abject poverty and depressed condition of the great bulk of the people it is not too much to say that there are at present more than double the persons in ireland it is with its existing means of production able either fully to employ or to maintain in a moderate state of comfort As in 1841 the population of Ireland was given as 8,175,124, we may set it down in 1838 as about 8 millions. Thus, to change McCulloch's negative into an affirmative, Ireland would, according to the overpopulation theory, have been able to employ fully and maintain in a moderate state of comfort something less than 4 million persons now in the early part of the preceding century when dean swift wrote his modest proposal the population of ireland was about two millions as neither the means nor the arts of production had perceptibly advanced in ireland during the interval then if the abject poverty and depressed condition of the irish people in eighteen thirty eight were attributable to overpopulation there should, upon McCulloch's own admission, have been in Ireland in 1727 more than full employment, and much more than a moderate state of comfort, for the whole two millions. Yet, instead of this being the case, the abject poverty and depressed condition of the Irish people in 1727 were such that, with burning, blistering irony, Dean Swift proposed to relieve surplus population by cultivating a taste for roasted babies, and bringing yearly to the shambles, as dainty food for the rich, a hundred thousand Irish infants. It is difficult for one who has been looking over the literature of Irish misery, as while writing this chapter I have been doing, to speak in decorous terms of the complacent attribution of Irish wanton suffering to overpopulation which is to be found even in the works of such high-minded men as Mill and Buckle i know of nothing better calculated to make the blood boil than the cold accounts of the grasping grinding tyranny to which the irish people have been subjected and to which and not to any inability of the land to support its population irish pauperism and irish famine are to be attributed And were it not for the enervating effect which the history of the world proves to be everywhere the result of abject poverty, it would be difficult to resist something like a feeling of contempt for a race who, stung by such wrongs, have only occasionally murdered a landlord. Whether overpopulation ever did cause pauperism and starvation may be an open question but the pauperism and starvation of ireland can no more be attributed to this cause than can the slave trade be attributed to the overpopulation of africa or the destruction of jerusalem to the inability of subsistence to keep pace with reproduction had ireland been by nature a grove of bananas and bread-fruit had her coasts been lined by the guano deposits of the chinches and the sun of lower latitudes warmed into more abundant life her moist soil the social conditions that have prevailed there would still have brought forth poverty and starvation. How could there fail to be pauperism and famine in a country where rack-rents wrested from the cultivator of the soil all the produce of his labor except just enough to maintain life in good seasons, where tenure at will forbade improvements and removed incentive to any but the most wasteful and poverty-stricken culture? where the tenant dared not accumulate capital, even if he could get it, for fear the landlord would demand it in the rent, where in fact he was an abject slave, who, at the nod of a human being like himself, might at any time be driven from his miserable mud-cabin, a houseless, homeless, starving wanderer, forbidden even to pluck the spontaneous fruits of the earth, or to trap a wild hare to satisfy his hunger. No matter how sparse the population, no matter what the natural resources— Are not pauperism and starvation necessary consequences in a land where the producers of wealth are compelled to work under conditions which deprive them of hope, of self-respect, of energy, of thrift, where absentee landlords drain away without return at least a fourth of the net produce of the soil, and when, besides them, a starving industry must support resident landlords with their horses and hounds, agents, jobbers, middlemen and bailiffs, an alien state church to insult religious prejudice, and an army of policemen and soldiers to overawe and hunt down any opposition to the iniquitous system is it not impiety far worse than atheism to charge upon natural laws misery so caused what is true in these three cases will be found upon examination true of all cases So far as our knowledge of facts goes, we may safely deny that the increase of population has ever yet pressed upon subsistence in such a way as to produce vice and misery, that increase of numbers has ever yet decreased the relative production of food. The famines of India, China, and Ireland can no more be credited to overpopulation than the famines of sparsely populated Brazil. The vice and misery that come of want can no more be attributed to the niggardliness of nature than can the six millions slain by the sword of Genghis Khan, Tamerlane's pyramid of skulls, or the extermination of the ancient Britons or of the aboriginal inhabitants of the West Indies. End of Book Two, Chapter Two, Paragraphs Twenty to Forty. Recording by Tim Macarios, Idiophilus.wordpress.com.